Hello and welcome to the Overseas Vietnamese Podcast. This is the show for the global Vietnamese community, all about Vietnamese success stories and cultural identity. We feature interesting personalities from all over the world and have them tell us about their life stories, perspectives and challenges. My name is Quang and I'm the founder of Overseas Vietnamese, the global community of Vietnamese professionals. To learn more, visit us on OverseasVietnamese.com. Our guest today is Jane Lu, a Vietnamese-American award-winning planetary astronomer and defense system engineer. Already at a young age, Jane had an interest in science and went to study physics at Stanford University on a scholarship. Graduating in 1984, she spent the summer before starting postgraduate studies, working at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Inspired by the pictures of planets on the walls, she resolved to study planetary astronomy at the Massachusetts Institute for Technology. It was there while working on her doctorate that she teamed up with David Jewett, with whom she later discovered the Kuiper Belt, vastly increasing the number of known objects in the solar system and leading to a major advance in the understanding of the history of our planetary system. Jane then moved to positions at Harvard University, UC Berkeley, and Lyon University. She then took a break from observational astronomy to work at MIT Lincoln Laboratory. But let her talk herself. Without further ado, hello Jane. I think I've never spoken to an astronomer before, not to mention a Vietnamese one. So thank you for being on our show today. Uh, thank you for having me. As a passionate astronomer, what would you say, why should anyone learn about astronomy? You don't have to learn about astronomy, um, but you can be curious about it. If you're curious about anything about the world around you, then you just, it's, it's, it's something that appeals to, to, to people because you know, everybody looks up at the sky and then you see the stars and you see the planets. And I think it's just natural to wonder, well, what, what are those things doing? What, what are they? And how do we fit in? It's just a whole question about, are you interested in the world you live in? Are you interested in the, the, the universe you live in? Do you have any kind of curiosity? I think that that's the main thing. It's if, if you're curious about the world you live in, then you'll be curious about astronomy. You're curious about geology, you'll be curious about biology. It's just part of the natural world that you live in. And I think it's, most people have some curiosity about it. What about you? Tell us a bit about how you got interested in astronomy. Oh, well, um, well that was that the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which most people call JPL. I had a summer job and, at, at JPL, and, and this was after university at Stanford. At, at Stanford, I, I didn't do any astronomy at all because um, it wasn't part of the curriculum. It, it wasn't offered. Astronomy was not offered at, at Stanford. And I had no, not much interest in it. I, I studied physics and other topics. And so, so surrounding me, there were people just doing things like, you know, solid state physics, low temperature physics. So that's what I thought about. Didn't do think about astronomy at all. Then I went to JPL for a summer job. And JPL had lots of very pretty pictures of the planets because of the, all the missions that went to uh, visit various planets. And you know, they're beautiful pictures. You see pictures of Jupiter and Saturn. And I thought this, they were very, very nice pictures. And, and that was the first time it occurred to me that some people were lucky enough to study these pictures for a living. And I thought, wow, <laughs> really, that is really cool. And I asked a friend of mine, like, who, who, who get to study these things? And he said, planetary astronomers. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's a really good job. <laughs> so that's how it got started. I love it. And how many people were working there at the time? Oh, I, I don't know, thousands. It's, it's a big place. It's been involved in every 
space mission that NASA put up and, uh, and it's still doing it now. So it, it's, it's a big place. Were there any women there? Yeah, I think they both. There, there were lots of there were lots of women there then, and I think there are lots of women there now. I don't know how the ratio has changed over time. And what would you say your favorite memory was from that time? Well, that was about it. Just the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do my job. Was it was very uh, uninteresting. You know, just basically running computer programs. There was nothing interesting about that. I just thought the the pictures were pretty and. I still think the same thing. I think pictures of the solar system are, are, are so pretty because you know they're close-up pictures, and you really get to see what these things look like. And you know, they're very, very different from what you see when you just look up at the sky and you just see a dot, and and that's all you know. And then you see these close-up pictures, and they're amazing. So anyway, so the pictures were by far the best part. Do you still look at some today? Are you still looking at pictures of planets and space? They appear on the news all the time, right? <laughs> right. They're always space missions. Hubble send back beautiful pictures all the time, and then yeah, it, it's hard not to be impressed by them, right? Because uh, all you know is Earth. These things are just they're just different worlds. They're completely different. Some are covered in ice, and some are covered in lava, and they're, they're just amazing things. Yeah, absolutely. I was just wondering because now you have started working as an engineer in other industries. Um, my day job is as an engineer, and I build instruments, um, and that's fine. It pays the bills, <laughs> but in terms of the, the stuff that captures my imagination, is is still the pictures. But yeah, you 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 look at them, and you just can't help wondering, like, what the heck? What is it going on? What is you know what is going on there that's different from from here on Earth? And they're so different. They are so so different because they're located at different places. From the sun, they have different temperatures. They're made of different things. It's like science fiction, but it's not science fiction. <laughs> but it looks like science fiction. I'm guessing that when you were growing up, there already was a big fascination with space in the states around that time. Um, you know, I in Vietnam there was no science education to speak of. Then I came to the states, and there was just the normal science in school. But you know, I wasn't in it. I did not go to any fancy. School, so we watched the the average kind of mediocre education. But I, I like physics, so I did physics at Stanford. But as I said, there was no astronomy at at, at Stanford. So physics there at Stanford were just things in, you can find in the lab. Like I said, mostly vacuum pumps <laughs> and 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 cryogenics and working in the basement. So I like physics, and and then to, I would say it was JPL was the, the first place where I that I was aware that there, there was this whole world of Other things in the solar system, as I said, they, they look just like science fiction, but they're not, and that was it. That was the amazing thing because I saw close-up pictures, right? So then you look up at the sky, and they just point, just little bright little points of light. But now you look at the pictures, and they look nothing like that. They they just amazing close-up pictures. So I would say it was JPL that that got me thinking about these things because that was when I became aware that they're not just little dots of light. There's something else. Now, JPL was the beginning of the journey. It seems. What was next then? Then, uh, so that was when I was learned about something called planetary astronomy, and I thought that was such a cool job. So I applied to graduate school. I went to MIT. Blah blah blah. <laughs> and did the usual thing. Then I get a postdoc, and then we discovered the Kuiper belt, and the and and then 
I got some professorships. Then after a while, I just couldn't take that environment anymore. Then I just quit. Tell us about the discovery of the Kuiper Belt. I mean, this was huge. It took you around five years, and now you just mentioned it in passing. Oh yeah, we, we. I mean, it wasn't the only thing we did, right? So, um, well, yeah, for five years we we worked at it. You know, we'd go work on that particular project a few times a year. You go to the telescope and you you do work for that project. And for five years, we found nothing. We were doing other things too. It wasn't just that project. It wasn't that wasn't the only project. So we had other things going on that would make up for all the disappointments. <laughs> Every time we worked, went to the telescope and found nothing. Right. So it wasn't the only thing we were doing because that would have been tragic. But um, but we had other projects. So and uh, so you know we were we were kept busy. We 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 had many things going on, and this was a side thing that we just. Wanted to do, and lots of people thought they were just we were stupid, we were crazy, we were wasting time. And maybe and 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 maybe they were right at that point. We really had no idea. It could have gone one way or the other. There was no theory that could say yes, you should find something. There, there was nothing like that. So we could have found something, or we could have found something. It could have gone either way. So when our friend said that you know you, it's about time to give up. It's a waste of time. They, they they made very well could have been correct as far as we knew, and so we thought we'll just keep going for a little while longer, a little while longer. <laughs> eventually, we'll give up, but we, we, you know we just go to try a bit longer, and then eventually, we, when we found it, it it, it was uh, it, it was kind of surreal, right? You just you do something for so long and you fail all the time, and then finally you find it and you keep thinking, no, this is a mistake. This is a mistake. You got it. Something we did something wrong. Um, and I think that's not just for us. I think it's the same story about any scientific discovery. You 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 find it and you find something that is unusual, and you have to rule out every single possible source of error. You have to do it. You have to think: Where did I go wrong? What could this thing be? It could just be something different. You have to think of all possibilities, and then after you do that, you have to repeat it because if it's not repeatable, then it's not real. So, so it, it was a long process of finding the thing that that particular night, and then going through all the processes of eliminating error, and then repeating it again. So we, we you know, we we made this, we repeated, we repeated our observation, you know, the following night and the next night. So we knew the thing was real, but then you have to make sure it's not a maybe just a weird comet, maybe. And to answer that kind of question takes a long time, because you have to fit an orbit, right? You you, you find something. And the question, oh, what kind of orbit does it have? And to answer that question, that takes time. You just have to wait days and weeks. You you can't just. It's not a calculation you 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 can do immediately because all observations involve errors. So anyway, to make this long story short, we have to wait just to make sure that everything is consistent. So anyway, and so it took a while, and 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 at, at any point along the way, we could have been proven wrong. <laughs> so, but it's just that's just the way science is. You gotta repeat your experiments, and you hope that you your you that what you did was you, you hope your hypothesis was correct, but it could be wrong. And that's just the way it is. It requires a lot of determination and patience, I guess. I mean, determination. I mean, it's not like going out to run a marathon or anything. So it's not that, but it's patience and. You know, we've been doing it for so long. <laughs> it was yes, we could wait a bit longer, but uh, um, it's it's patience and not jumping to conclusion 
and being skeptical and considering all possibilities that you could be wrong. That, that's the main thing. If you want to prove something is correct, it has to be repeatable and you have to rule out all possible sources of error. <laughs> and I think it doesn't, it's not just astronomy, that's just science. And I think it's in, it's in everything. If you have a theory, you just got to prove that, you, that it's correct. So how did it feel then after five years and then you finally discovered the Kuiper belt in 1992, was it? Yeah, well, it's so, you you know, you, you make sure that, it, as I said, it takes a while to be really sure that it, it was what it was. But then it's, then it's not over. It's not like, okay, I'm done now. <laughs> and that's it. It's a brand new field, right? You just start a new, you just discover something really big. That, so we found a population of things, but we had no idea what this population could tell us. Well, is it, we really had no idea what shaped it, what caused it. It's just a start of a new area of research. So it's just the beginning. Finding one was just the beginning. And people would say, well, there was only one one such object and you were lucky enough to find it. And then we would just laugh at that. It was just basically saying, you know, what are you thinking? Right? How, think of the probability of that. But think of the odds of that happening. That's just stupid. So then you find more to prove that that was just a, a fluke. And then so then, then, then we embarked on a whole new field of, of, of research. So it wasn't like we sat around and said, ah, Okay, we found what we were looking for. It's done. We just go celebrate. Um, there was a little bit of that, but then we realized it was a lot more work to be done. I think it was fun. So it wasn't, you know, we were, were not unhappy that there was more things to do. I want to know more about the actual process of discovery. How does it take place? And how are these telescopes used and operated? We use a telescope because these things are very faint. So you have to use a telescope. There's no way you can see, see it with your naked eye. Um, so you use a telescope and then the, the detector is a camera, like what you have in your cell phone, kind of like that. Um, and you take pictures, just like you take pictures with your cell phone. And, but, you know, our cameras were better. And so you have images, they're in electronic format. So they, it made it easier to, to analyze. But it all happens in the nighttime, right? Of course. We don't take observation with our eyes, right? These things have to be observed at night. You can't see them during the day. You don't see anything during the day except the sun and the moon. So you have to wait at nighttime <laughs> and you have the telescope. Do we look at the sky at night? Sure, we do that just to see are there clouds, right? If there are clouds coming, then you know, oh, there are clouds coming. So then if it's bad, you close, you know, you don't do anything. If it's not too bad, maybe you think, okay, maybe I can do a little bit of work. So assuming the night is clear, you sit in a control room. Luckily, we don't have to sit in the dome where the telescope is because it's really cold. It's really, really cold in the dome usually because this is on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. So it's a top of volcano. We sat in a little control room and it's very small and it's very cold. <laughs> and you just sit there all night and you work. <laughs> and then you wish you could go to sleep, but you can't. <laughs> and then, so the happiest time is that after the, after the last night, it's the, you know, you work all night for whatever, three, four or five nights. And then... You know, the sun comes up you think yes i can go back i can go home and sleep now and so after the last night and you, you go in, you're driving down the mountain but well, i was always very happy and you have some breakfast and then you go to sleep and then you wake up again around you wake up you know the idea is to sleep as long as you can because it's going to be another long night but it's difficult for humans to turn around their schedule right you you, you can't just simply switch 180 degrees like that so, or you do the best you can. <laughs> you go to sleep at eight in the morning and then sometimes you wake up at noon and that's not very long for sleeping, but what can you do? So 
it, it gets better as time goes on. You, you get more and more used to it. But you sleep during the day and you work at night. So that was all on tropical Hawaii. Why there specifically? Why on top of a volcano? So when you do astronomy from the ground, the atmosphere is your enemy, right? Because it's it's there, there are lots of different pockets of air in the atmosphere, and they have different temperatures. So basically, it's like looking through a bunch of different lenses, like tons and tons of lenses, and they screw up your observations. So you want to be as high as possible, right? To just if you if you can just be above the atmosphere, that would be ideal. That's why space telescopes are so good. They're above the atmosphere. From the ground, you don't have a choice, so you do the best you can, which means you go to a, a mountain, a high mountain. And um, so Mauna Kea was good because it's high up, it's fourteen uh, thousand feet. It's dry because water vapor absorbs absorbs light, so that's that's no good. So it's high, it's dry, and it's uh, in the middle of an ocean, so the airflow is uh, stable. It's not turbulent, and you want things to. You want the atmosphere to be as calm as possible, and you can't get rid of it. So being high up in the middle of the ocean, that's about as as good as you can get. So how did you like Hawaii aside from work? Oh, Hawaii is nice. I mean, it's it's a lovely place. But on top of Mount Mauna Kea, it's it's not that much fun. It's it, <laughs> the, the oxygen level is about sixty percent of the oxygen level at sea level. So you don't have enough oxygen. You get dehydrated because it's so dry. You can't sleep because you're working, <laughs> and then you do have you you have uh, you always have some kind of altitude sick. Not you're not sick sick, but there's not much oxygen, so your your body doesn't like it, and it, you don't feel very good. And it's cold. Afterward, you think you forget about how miserable it is, and you, you look at the data and you think, wow, this is really good. Right? So so you go back up again <laughs> the next time. Is it your favorite telescope, or do you have any others? Oh uh, well, that telescope—it's is my favorite, I guess. So just because you, the, it was the University of Hawaii two point two meter telescope where we did most of our work and where we did the discovery. Um, it's uh, I guess it's my favorite because that's where we the, the, the one that allow us to do all these uh, fantastic observations. Is it comfortable? No, it's not comfortable. Is it the most comfortable telescope? No, it's not the most comfortable telescope. Um, so every telescope has a control room where you sit all night long, and some are more comfortable than others. What do you think is one misconception that people have about astronomy? That our life is glamorous. Uh, as I, I have been telling you for the last. Ten minutes. No, it's not glamorous. It's just sitting a lot of sitting around in the middle, you know, all night long in a little dark room, <laughs> and and being very tired. Yeah, it's 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 stressful, and and you get around it by you try to be prepared, as prepared as possible because you know your brain is not working very well, right? Because it's it's it just at the low oxygen level, your brain doesn't work well. So you don't have to solve anything difficult while you're up there. So that's the best thing you can do. What else? Um, eating chocolate helps. <laughs> M&Ms help. Um, yeah. <laughs> that sounds hard. Well, it's it's good and bad memories. Right? It's bad memories of those long nights being miserable. But it's good memories because you we made so many discoveries. So it's it's good and bad. I think like anything else, right? You can't get around the hard work. It doesn't come for free. <laughs> What then is your opinion on spaceflight? I'm not a fan of it because as, long, as soon as you put human into the equation, things become much much harder to do because you have to keep the human safe. So it becomes much much more expensive, much more difficult, and 
it, it depends on what you want to do with the humans. If you want to find out whether human can exist in space, okay, that's one question you need the human for. But if you're, what you're after is scientific data, there is no reason to have a human, right? A robot could do just as well. Um, you have scientific instrument could just take the data just as well, better than the humans can. So it depends what you want to do. What about commercial space flights? Um, I think it's somewhat pointless. I mean, it's, I guess it's the next extension from, you know, now we can get in an airplane and we can go to some place and be a tourist. I guess this is a commercial air flight with humans. And that's just the next step up, right? So just instead of being a tourist on another continent, now you are tourists in other places. But this is at enormous cost, enormous carbon footprint. So, and as an astronomer, we, we worry about light pollution because it really affects our observations. And I know that their plan to send up thousands and thousands of satellites. I'm not crazy about it, but there's nothing we, you know, all we can do is ask people, commercial companies, can you not do it? But of course, they're not going to listen because money's involved. <laughs> so, you know, between money and astronomy, I think money wins most of the time. Um, being a commercial tourist to explore other places, the solar system, I guess it kind of cool. But again, I think it's just at the enormous cost. I don't like the idea of space colonization so much at this point, because it just seems like it's part of the single use mentality, like, you know, how we use plastic forks and things and it's single use, you use it once and you throw it out. And here in this case is planet, right? So you trash the current planet and then you go find another one. And I, I don't like that very much. <laughs> so why don't you, you know, take care, take care of what the resource that you have and so you don't need to go find and colonize another planet. If you go to another, it, it depends what you want to do when you go to another planet. Are you just going to mess it up? Are you just going to extract things to make money off it? If you're there just to study, that's fine. But if you're there to like to mine and to, to make money off it, it doesn't seem like a very noble idea. When you were telling that you enjoyed looking at pictures of planets and eventually became an astronomer, I'm asking myself whether you've never dreamed of visiting space yourself, even though now you seem to be quite opposed to that. I mean, as I said, it's it's nice to see, but you know, the pictures are so good. Okay, so I guess you can say, well, there's nothing like being there. Okay, but I guess I cannot separate that from understanding the. From, it would be enormous cost, enormous risk. So. It's nice, but I, I can't separate the cost and the risk from, from the, the, the pleasure of seeing something up close, I guess. That's what I'm saying. Surely with how good virtual reality is now, you could just feel like you're there without actually going at that cost. As I said, the, the images we get from spacecraft are so good. Right? And now it, when you have a mission, there's all these missions that we've had to, to the moon. And the um, images are just amazing. And you can go to YouTube and you can just see videos of what it's like to fly over the lunar surface. And it's just fabulous. It, it just, like, it's just like, it's so, so good. I, I guess I, I don't need virtual reality. I, I have an imagination. It works pretty well. So um, I guess, yeah, for some people, they like virtual reality. That's fine. But what I'm saying is you don't need it. Is there anything left that you still hope to discover in your lifetime? Um. Let's see, I got interested in something called fractals. So I'm kind of, so that's, that's in my mind. 
but you know that's just a personal hobby like this this search for the kuiper belt thing we were interested in it we're not saying it's the, the most pressing question in the universe i guess there are many questions in the solar system that that i i, I hope we will we'll answer someday there's no specific burning question no what is some advice that you would give to young people who are going into science or astronomy these days? I think it's, um, I'm not saying everybody should become an astronomer, certainly. Um, but I think learning science is, is a good thing to do, even if you don't become a scientist, because it just teaches you how to think logically. And that's useful in anything. It helps you make good decisions. It helps you decide what is fake news and what is real news, right? Because it's all logical thinking. Right? You, you, you read something and somebody claims something and then you ask yourself, does that sound right? Is it, you know, is this, is, this, is this real or is it fake? And so you look into it by checking other sources of news. And so it's just like taking data. You make a measurement and it says something and you think, is it real? So you go and you do some more measurements and you check other sources of information. And if everybody, everything is consistent, you say, okay, then I believe that. And so that's kind of logical and scientific thinking that, that that's what we do. Um, and I think that's useful in, in anything. It's useful to society, certainly, if you can distinguish between real news and fake news. So going to science, I think is, 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 is a very good thing. You don't have to become a scientist, but you just learn to become, uh, you, you learn to think logically and you, you question things. If something sounds stupid and crazy, maybe it is. And, and you think twice before you believe it. So all that, I think, is, is very good. So going to science is a good thing. And uh, it just uh, teaches you how to think in a way that helps you make better decisions. I like it. <laughs> Have you been to Vietnam and how was it? Um, I, yeah, I was there. When was the last time? I don't remember. Anyway, um, it's it's um, it's like traveling to any third world country, right? You you see the discrepancy between well how people in the, the rich Western countries live, and you see how people in the third world countries live, and there's a big discrepancy. Um, and you don't know, or you really don't know how to to help improve these people's lives, and that 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 bothered me. And and I know that as an astronomer, I don't do anything useful. I, I was not useful to any of these people. So it's, it's um, it makes you feel very helpless, right? So it was it fun? It was meet, fun meeting nice people. Everybody was very welcome and, 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 and kind. But the, this feeling of helplessness kind of uh, take the, the fun away. How much involved are you in the Vietnamese community? How many Vietnamese have been around you, are around you? In, in astronomy, there are not very many Vietnamese people. Uh, around me, I have maybe a few Vietnamese friends, not many, just, I guess, just because I, I live, you know, in the suburbs of, of, of Boston and it's, it's not a huge Vietnamese community. I think you go to certain pockets around Boston and, and be a lot more people. Like in, uh, there's uh, one area of Boston where the, there's a big Vietnamese community uh, called Dorchester. And that's where you find all the restaurants, all the shops, Vietnamese shops. And yes, I like going there because I think uh, Vietnamese, I love Vietnamese food. Um, I miss it. I think it's, it's fantastic. Can I cook it? No. <laughs> so <laughs> I like going to the Dorchester just because you know, that I can get really good Vietnamese food. Um, do I like the culture? I do. I, I think uh, immigrants have another perspective and, and 
they get a chance to see how different parts of the world live. And I think um, you always learn from that, right? So you, you see diversity and, and you try to learn the, the good parts from, from, from all the different cultures, right? Just, just because you were able to see different things. Do you speak Vietnamese? Yeah, yeah I was uh, 11 when I left, so yeah. Mm. Do I speak it fluently? Um, it, it depends. If uh, you talk about everyday life, sure, that, that, then I can speak fluently. And what's your favorite Vietnamese dish? Bánh um, cuốn, I think. <laughs> nice. Yeah, for me, it's actually Mi Guang, which is where my dad is from. Where is your family from? From Guang Nam in the center, central Vietnam. It's near Hoi An and Da Nang. Okay, I haven't been to Hoi <laughs> and it was unbearably hot. Oh, it was so, so hot. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I don't eat meat. So it makes it a bit difficult to find Vietnamese food. Yeah, I guess you have to go into specialist vegetarian restaurants in Vietnam if you wanted a good selection. How long have you been vegetarian for? A long, long time, since college. Um, you, know, you just get, you learn how animals are treated and then and you decide, no, <laughs> I'm not going to support it. <laughs> so then you don't eat meat. It just really, the, the, yeah, it just, it's just very shameful how, how animals are treated. <laughs> And it cuts your carbon footprint too, so. That comes at, the, I only realized that, you know, on, on recent years, but originally it's just humanitarian. I, th- I just think you, you shouldn't treat anybody the way you don't want to be treated, <laughs> including animals. Yeah, I see you're very environmentally conscious. Do you think that comes from you being a scientist and being a lot in nature? I think it's, it comes from being Buddhist. And we, I was raised in a Buddhist family and it's this the belief of... Uh, harm no living things that's i think that's the idea but i i do admit i do kill mosquitoes <laughs> if i get bitten by a mosquito i am going to kill the mosquito <laughs> because it's trying to eat me <laughs> it's self-defense so it's okay oh yeah i, I completely agree I, I, if there's a mosquito around the house i am going to kill the mosquito <laughs> but the idea of harm no living things and i think it, it extends to it certainly extends to animals and it certainly extends to to uh, the environment. I mean, it's, you know, this is home, right? The environment is our, our home. Like nobody wants to poison your home. I mean, who would want to hurt their, their home? And I, um, I don't understand that. <laughs> like it's, you know, your home is something you protect and because that's, that's where you live. So it's, it's a self-interest. Speaking of self-interest, can you think of anything that you would want to tell the world specifically to the Vietnamese community? Because now's the time to do so. I, I, I like the, so as I said, I, I, I like the, to, to push this idea of going to science, even if you don't want to become a scientist. It's just the logical thinking. And, and so hopefully that they, they will be able to recognize real news from fake news. Um, that's important to, to any, I think any, any community, not, not just a Vietnamese community. And, uh, and if I had to say, give a message, I would say, you know, this is a very cliche, but you, you, you can do anything you really want to do. It might take a very, very long time. It might take 10 years, 20 years, 30, I, I don't know. Um, but you should try to do whatever you want to do, whatever that is. It might take a very long time, but it's worth it because if you're interested in it, I think it's it's, it's worth it. You, you go for what you believe in and what you want to do. And sometimes you get lucky. Don't get me wrong. Luck has a lot to do with things. And there's nothing you can do about luck. But if you don't keep trying, there will be no luck. So you have to, yeah, you have to try and, and maybe you'll get lucky. There's no guarantee in anything. 
Do you think that the discovery of the Kuiper belt was rather luck or more persistence and hard work? It's both. Eventually, it's both, right? It's it's a lot. It's just having the discipline and the determination to, to keep slogging, right? You, you keep slogging and you, you keep failing and you just keep you just keep going and then and then eventually you, you, you get lucky if we hadn't found it somebody else would have eventually in fact the the largest Kuiper belt had objects had been found decades before we did but nobody paid any attention and we paid attention so we we, we made the discovery so it's if you don't try and then, then then you're not going to succeed unless a miracle happens <laughs> but then if you don't try even if a miracle happens you wouldn't you wouldn't know what was happening anyway. You wouldn't understand. Um, so, so yes, luck has a lot to do with it. But, but the the efforts have to be there. You, you, you have to do something. Most of the time, real efforts are required. And 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 then you hope you get a bit lucky. And then you then then with that you might succeed. Otherwise, you might not succeed. And that's a bummer. But that's just the way it is. It, a lot of things are just random. I always like that saying that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Right, so I, I, the Skype about discovery, if we hadn't found it, somebody else would have, eventually. But you were prepared and you had the opportunity and here you are. And we kept slogging. <laughs> we kept slogging, yep. Well, Jane, thank you so much for your time. We had a lot of fun talking to you. Um, I hope it was fun for you too. All right, so thank you again. And then I guess I'll hear from you sometime thank in you the future. Much. Thanks everyone for listening. If you found this interesting, share our podcast with your friends. To get in touch with our team or to join the Overseas Vietnamese community, visit OverseasVietnamese.com. We run a vibrant online community for Vietnamese people from all over the world, where we chat about a wide range of topics, from career growth and personal development, to Vietnamese culture and economy, and much, much more. We are a family looking out for each other and growing together. See you there and in the next episode.